All right, so last Sunday we began a new sermon series called Stranger Things in the Bible. And it's based on a bunch of questions that arose when our teenagers went through the Hebrew Scriptures for a whole year two years ago. That's what most of us call maybe the Old Testament in the Bible. Anyway, their questions are fantastic. And a lot of the questions that they asked are questions that I've had and wanted to dig into more. And they're probably questions that you've had or you've just skipped over the weird parts of the Bible because they're weird and hard to understand. So we're going to tackle some of those things today. And um, some of the things that we're going to be looking at over these weeks, including today, are graphic, um, disturbing, and strange, and stranger things in the Bible. I mean, just to start off, these things are written about events that happened thousands of years ago, um, recording events that took place in a time in a language, in a culture, and a geography that is almost completely foreign to almost every one of us. So just in its sense of being old and far away, it's going to be weird. And at the same time, these stories and the themes in them have to deal with the human condition. And in that sense, they are relevant for all time because we're humans and we have the same human condition at our core. And one thing that is important for us to remember, I've been reminding myself as I go through these stories as well, is that the Bible, the, the, whole, the whole Bible is a unified story. It tells one gigantic story that points to Jesus. And it is a book, the Bible, that contains all kinds of different writings in different genres, literary styles, from poetry to history to theological history to gospels and letters from people, but it all tells a story that points to Jesus. And the story that we're going to be looking at tonight happens in the first book of the Bible, and it's in the 38th chapter of that book. And just like the whole Bible, the book of Genesis, which is a pretty big book, It's a unified whole. It's not just a bunch of individual stories and snippets of tales that were um, like put together like a mosaic. It was put together intentionally to tell a story. And so I want to give us some context before we jump into chapter 38, because unless you are sick in the head, you wouldn't start a novel on the 38th chapter, right? (laughs) I know some, some people here skip to the end and read the end first. Right, Tommy? It's wrong. I think one of, my, one of my kids does that. But anyway, I love him anyway. But w- you probably wouldn't just jump into the middle of a book because you wouldn't know what's going on. And so we're going to try and get a grasp of just the basics of what's going on before Genesis 38. And to do that, we're going to look at a genealogy that Torn's going to put on the screen and that you have in your sermon notes section of your bulletin. You can actually turn that sideways, turn it landscape, and you'll see... Um, we're getting stuff there. Okay, so you have... Um, the genealogy in your in your bulletin and what I want you to do if you have a writing utensil I want you to circle that name Abraham because he's the guy he and Sarah they are the ones who God in Genesis chapter 12 he chose them because the world was falling apart and he said I'm going to bless you two and out of you two I'm going to create a whole family meaning like a whole people that I'm going to bless and the purpose of blessing you is not so that you're just blessed in your own little, uh, you know, echo chamber. But I want to bless you so that all of the nations, all of the world come to see how good it is for 
people who, who love God and know his love and, and serve him. And so uh, Abraham and Sarah have this son Isaac. So you can, you can circle Isaac as well because that's part of the story that we're going into. And Isaac has two sons named Jacob and Esau. And as we'll see in all of these stories, God picks different people who are unlikely. Esau is actually the older brother, but Jacob is the one through whom the promise of God goes through. And so let's circle Jacob's name. So we've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob is all kinds of screwed up because he, he has like two wives and those wives have servants and he has kids with all of them. So yes, this is disturbing and stranger things in the Bible going on here. So Jacob has all these kids with four ladies that we know of. And, um, and from those four ladies, we get the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I know you're going to read more names that are on there. One of those names is Dinah, who's a sister who has her own story, which is pretty cool. Uh, and then also there's Benjamin in there who occurs later on in the story. But anyway, so there's 12 main tribes and 12 brothers that are heads of these tribes. And one of them named Judah is on that timeline or genealogy. And you can circle Judah's name because he is going to be in the story that we're talking about tonight. And then there's Tamar, and I want you to circle her name too. She has two kids with Judah, and they, one of them, Perez, you could circle his name, and you could draw a little line and say, leads to Jesus. All right. So when we get into Genesis chapter 38 here, we are going to be dealing with the story of Judah. Now, something happens really important before chapter 38. Jacob, let's go, you can look at him on the genealogy, you can get your bearings there. Jacob has these sons, these 12 sons, and his youngest son at the time was Joseph. And the Bible says, for whatever reason, because Jacob was screwed up, he played favorites, he loved this kid more than the other one. And he gave him a special coat. You've seen maybe Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat or whatever. He had this fancy coat, which set him apart from his brothers. And Joseph had a dream from God, which in itself isn't a bad thing. He had a dream from God that said like, hey, one day you're going to rule over your brothers. Now, the mistake from Joseph, my point of view that Joseph made is he goes and tells his brothers, hey, guess what, guys? I had a dream and I'm going to rule over you, which younger brothers weren't supposed to rule over anybody, but that's what he does. And the older brothers already are ticked because dad plays favorites. He got the fancy coat. He has all this status. He never has to work. Like, they're out working, and his dad sends them out with, like, food. Like, hey, go check on your older brothers. And so they're out working the fields, and he's in his fancy coat coming out, and they're mad. Um, and so they plan to kill him, to kill their own brother. So they put him in a pit. And then one brother, Judah, he says, you know what? Like, why kill him? Like, let's sell him to Ishmaelite slave, slave traders. And so they sell their own brother. Judah has this idea. And slave traders come, and they take Joseph away from this pit in the ground. And then they sell him to Potiphar, who is a servant, a high-ranking servant of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's the end of Genesis chapter 37. And then we get into 38. Now, 38, chapter 38 of Genesis divides nicely into two sections. What I'm going to do is read the first section, and we'll deal with it, and then we'll move on. So the first section of Genesis 38 is, chapter, is verses 1 through 11. And I'll just remind you, Joseph 
the youngest brother of all of these brothers, the sons of Jacob, has just been sold into slavery. He's now in Egypt. And now we get a story about Judah. And it came about that at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Harah. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and he went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Chasib that she bore him. Now, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, and so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. And so Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Stranger things in the Bible. Some, this is some weird stuff. Okay. Try and think like a movie maker or a storyteller for a minute and ask yourself why on earth is this chapter here i mean we were just getting into the saga of joseph getting sold into slavery by his brothers his brothers then brought this the coat the cloak the fancy cloak of his brother and they brought it back to their dad they killed a goat they put the goat blood on it and they said, Dad, uh, can you examine these items? Do you, it, looks like, it looks like Joseph's. And then Jacob, you know, he's in mourning. And it was this whole, I mean, it's like a soap opera. It's like a, a really interesting movie, Twisted. But, um, you know, there's stuff like this out there. And, and so we're just getting, and then you get sold into Egypt. And let me do something for you. Let me just read the end of chapter 37 and the beginning of chapter 39. And you just tell me how you think this flows, right? So he's sold into slavery. Then all of his sons and daughters arose to comfort him. To so dad just found out that Joseph is dead. He thinks he's dead. Uh, and so uh, all his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard, end chapter 37, beginning chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there, and the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and the story goes and goes and goes. It just flows so well from the end of chapter 37 to the beginning of chapter 39, what is chapter 38 for? To tell us all of these twisted stories about how God like killed some guy's sons, about how he marries into a Canaanite family, and then, well, it gets worse before it gets better. 
what is that even there for? If we were to keep reading in the book of Genesis, we would know that Judah is the brother through whom God's covenant promises continue. Not Joseph, not Reuben, the older brother, not Simeon, not any of the other brothers. And one wonders, how can such an unfaithful, unethical man like Judah become the one through whom God's covenant of salvation for the world would come? That would take an amazing story of radical redemption in order for that to happen. And when we zoom in on Judah in chapters 37 and 38, he's basically a low-level dirtbag of a brother who sells his own brother, his own flesh and blood into slavery. But that's not, I mean, that's bad enough. But it's his dad's favorite, right? And like he's causing his father, whom you're supposed to honor, deep grief. But by chapter 43, Judah will risk his own life to ensure the safety of his new younger brother, a kid named Benjamin. And he's going to do it not only for Benjamin's life, but he's going to weep at the potential of his father weeping over Benjamin. Judah somehow becomes a transformed man who becomes, moves from a callous jerk of a man to a warm and compassionate man who's capable of carrying out the promise. How does Judah become this new man? What does that process look like? How is his character formed? Chapter 38, I think, exists to tell us that story. And like I said, it gets worse before it gets better. So let's just dig into some of the details because I know the teenagers we're wondering about the details, and but let's face it, we like nitty-gritty stuff too. So first of all, let's just talk about setting. We get a time marker, if you're one of those people that's trying to follow the narrative. We get a time marker, and we learn that from the time Joseph was sold into slavery, that Judah then moved to Canaan, and you should just, like, if you're a movie maker right now, you're entering, like, discordant, like, cello music or violins, like Johnny Greenwood style, like, it's a bad omen when, <laughs> when one of the patriarch's children chooses to move to Canaan. You weren't supposed to mix with the Canaanites. They were these pagan folks that sacrificed children. And that's not going to go well when we, when we learn that this guy moves to Canaan. And from the get-go, we see that Judah, who is one of the bearers of the covenant of God, is choosing to put the covenant line in danger by moving to Canaan. And in fact, it says that he, he's visited by this friend named Terah, who was also from that Canaanite area. And, and then Judah goes further. He marries a Canaanite woman at, at something that his father and grandfather and great-grandfather would say, we don't, we don't do that. And, and then with this new wife, he has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, assuming that Judah wastes no time getting married, he's been away from Joseph about 18 or 19 years before Ur, his oldest son, is old enough to marry. And Judah brokers this marriage with his son with another Canaanite woman. So now he's two generations deep into uh, going, going astray. Not only is Judah putting the covenant in jeopardy by marrying a Canaanite, he's, he's now 
got his son involved in that, in that life and in, in that culture. And what we see next is a further window into the destruction of Judah's character. First, his son Ur died. We don't know. It just says that the Lord said he did evil. What's interesting is, okay, you've got the, the name Ur, which in, transliterated into English is E-R, Ur. This is what it sounds like. In Hebrew, the word for evil is Re. So it's like evil spelled backwards is the guy's name. Kind of, eh, kind of interesting. So, so Ur does evil. He gets zapped or whatever. I don't know how God killed him, but he, he dies and he doesn't have any kids. And so he's got this widow, Tamar. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, like a lot of cultures um, still, Bedouin cultures today, um, sometimes you would do what's called leveret marriage, which means that your next brother was supposed to have children with that widow. He didn't have to like leave, like let's say his next brother Onan was married already. He didn't have to leave his wife. He just had to have kids with his deceased brother's wife so that the seed of the oldest child would bear fruit these are all euphemisms you know what i'm talking about they're supposed to have kids and onan the next brother knew that if he gave tamar children that that child if it was a son would be the heir to his father's blessing and fortune not onan and not onan's kids and so what Onan does, right, is he, he sleeps with Tamar, but then he spills his seed on the ground. Those with ears to hear, let them hear. I mean, it's just a euphemism, it's biblical imagery, right? But like, he, he's such a dirtbag that he, he keeps sleeping with her, but, you know, it's just for pleasure. It's not for, for procreation, what he's supposed to be doing with his dead brother's wife. And so God takes him as well. And at the end of this section of the story, it, it ends with an indictment on Judah's evil heart. First of all, notice the difference between Judah and Jacob. Jacob, when he found out his youngest son Joseph was killed, he's in mourning, like unconsolable, like take me down to, to the, the place of the dead right now. I'm, I am so deeply sad. When, when Judah's sons start dying, he just like, well... Let's get the next one hooked up. And, you know, there's like, there's no sense of mourning. There's no sense of emotion. Uh, it's just practicality. The narrator tells us that Ur and Onan were taken by God because they were evil. But Judah doesn't even consider God. You know what Judah thinks? He thinks Tamar is some sort of black widow. And he's so terrified of Tamar, maybe superstition or something, that he wants to protect his youngest son, Shelah, who's now supposed to marry Tamar or at least have kids with her. And he says, you know what, Tamar? Why don't you go into mourning at your father's house? And when my youngest son is old enough to marry, I'll call you back and we'll make it happen, right? All the time he's thinking, that's never going to happen. This black widow is not getting near my last son. Now, all of that happens in the first 11 verses, which covers about 20 years' time. And now we get into verses 12 through 30. And time is going to slow down dramatically in the narrative. And we are now getting to the climax of the story. So let me read that. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah came up to the sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And it was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And so she removed her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat at the gateway of Enaim, which was on the road to Timnah, 
For she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot or a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And so he turned aside to her by the road, and he said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that it was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, Moreover, will you give me a pledge until you send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And then she says, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. And so he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garment. And when Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the, her place, saying, Where's the temple prostitute who is by the end uh, the road to Enaim? And they said, There's been no temple prostitute here. And so he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place say, There has been no temple prostitute here. And then Judah said, Let her keep, let her keep them, otherwise we will become the laughingstock. And after all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet rings and cords and staff are these? And Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, insomuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. And it came about at that time that she was giving birth, and behold, there were twins in her womb. And moreover, it took place that while she was giving birth, that one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about as that he drew back his hand, and behold, his brother came out. And then she said, What a breach you have made yourself. And so his name was Perez. And afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. And if you know the word Zerah from me saying it over and over again, that means seed. narrator tells us considerable time has passed that judah's wife has now died and in those days the cultural norm was to be in mourning uh, for a certain set of time that would involve wearing certain dark clothes usually black women would be veiled men would just have their heads down they wouldn't participate in any festivals or parties or drinking alcohol it was a somber time now we learn that judah's mourning period had ended and he wastes no time. He's on his way now to the sheep shearing festival with his buddy, uh, the uh, hurrah, right? The Canaanite guy, which doesn't everybody have one of those buddies or it could be a girlfriend or boyfriend. Like if you're the first one to get married of your friend group and then someone's always trying to drag you back down to the party. Um, that's hurrah, right? He's the bra who never gets married. And, um, and he's, so now he's got Judah and they're going up to the sheep shearing, which I know sounds like very homey. But sheep-shearing festivals in Canaanite culture were massive parties of drunkenness 
and pagan festivals, and it was a place to get wasted and to do a little business. And so that's where Judah's going. Hey, my morning time is over. I'm going with my brahara, and we're just going to go party. And meanwhile, Tamar, um, who is still in mourning and still wearing her stuff because she's actually a faithful person to this family, she learns about it, and she learns that he's never going to give her Shayla, and so she comes up with a plan. You have to appreciate that in those days, Judah would have been expected to care for Tamar. That was the expectation. His daughter-in-law, he would have to do one of three things. Marry her to his next eldest son, which would be Shelah, or set her free from her obligation so she could be free to marry someone um, because technically she's still married to his son. She's still part of his family. Or the third thing is that he could do would be to marry her himself and to give her children that way. Now, Judah does none of those things and so tamar conceives of a bold plan she removes her widow's garb and dresses like a prostitute with a veil over her face uh, judah is controlled by his lust as he encounters her on the side of the road and he solicits this person he doesn't know as tamar because temple prostitutes by the way wore veils like the whole time and so you wouldn't necessarily see their faces. And the idea was you do this fertility act, and then the fertility gods were supposed to bless you with crops and, and things like that. That's how Canaanite religion worked. And so he has relations with her, and you see not only is Judah kind of a, a scummy individual, but he has no social skills with the ladies. He just says, hey, let me come into you, which don't advise as a pickup line. And he's no Casanova. And, and so... Uh, so Judah, or Tamar now is, is going to ne negotiate a price. He says, you know, I'll give you a young goat, which I guess is a good deal. And, and he goes, well, I don't have it with me. Another class move, right? And so she goes, well, what will you give me for collateral, you know? And he says, well, I'll give you my signet ring, and I'll give you my, my sash and my staff. And what that basically means is that he's given her his fingerprints, his passport, and his credit cards. That's the equivalent of those things. Um, his identifying markers in society. Now, Judah goes back home, and he wants his stuff back because now his identity is out in the wild with a prostitute. His reputation is tied up in that. And so he sends his friend out. I don't know why he doesn't go himself because he's, again, it's Judah. What do you expect? So he sends his friend out with his goat to go find the harlot to pay off the debt. And he can't find it because guess what? She's not normally there. Like, no one hangs out there. And so he just gives up, and he says, let's not make a stink about it. Like, if we, if we make a big deal, if we put posters on, on the walls, you know, then people will know that, like, I did this, and so I'm just going to cut my losses, and we won't speak of this again. Well, then his attention shifts, because he's found out now, because the crowds are telling him, you know, how rumors fly, that his daughter-in-law, who's still part of the family and still wearing her mourning garb, is now pregnant very very pregnant time has passed and he says not only am i wanting to stone her which is the law uh, it could happen under the law but he wants to burn her which is extreme like that's just horrible well stoning is horrible too it's all horrible he's horrible and, and, and he's so infuriated that she's done this to his name and to his family. And, and I just, it may, gave me pause for a minute because I recognize that, like, that's often how we are. Um, we often are more judgmental of people who have the same issues and struggles that we do. Because it's like when we look at them, it's almost like a mirror of our own stuff. And so we're just 
Anyway, maybe that's just me, but I don't think it is. <laughs> okay, so you've stuck with me really far. There's a lot of context and genealogies and backstory, and we're about ready to get to the payoff for this story. But I just want you to consider, just want you to consider something for a minute. Judah comes from a family who knows God. Judah grew up hearing the stories, encountering God himself, and he is a keeper of the covenant. And he knows that deep down, God has chosen his family to be a blessing to the world. And up to this point, all we've seen from Judah is that he takes that promise for granted and he squanders it. He doesn't even seem motivated to make sure that his son has children to carry on the family line. Now I want you to consider Tamar. She is a woman from the Canaanite people with no claim to the promise. She's a pagan from a pagan family. She ought to be the antithesis of the people of God. But I wonder if during her short time being married to Ur and being around Onan and being around Judah, if she might have picked up some of that story of God, some of the stories of their ancestors, some of the reputation of Yahweh. Did she come to find out about the promises of God? And I think that the narrator, that the story implies that she did. And I think that it captured her heart and her imagination. And I think that that's the only thing that explains why Tamar would go to such great lengths to bear a child with this horrible family. I mean, she could have just gone off, skipped town to another land, and just started over with a new person, with a new family. She could have skipped town, but she stayed. And she not only stayed, but she risked her life and her reputation to bear a child of promise. And now she's standing in the public square with a belly full of evidence against her about her alleged infidelity. And she's about to be burned. And she says four familiar words. Please examine and see. Please examine and see. When Judah masterminded the selling of his brother to slave traders, he and his brothers dipped Joseph's cloak in blood and brought it to his father and, and said, please examine and see whether or not this is your son's tunic. And ironically, Tamar echoes those same words now to Judah, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff these are. This is the moment of truth. Judah has chosen a course for his life up to this point. He started down a road of evil when he sold his little brother as a common slave. And you know, every one of us builds a life based on one decision at a time. And that's what forms who we are. It's what forms our character. It's like building a house, one stone at a time, or one board at a time, or one piece at a time. And, and, and you, you build a structure based on the quality of the product, right? 
When you make good decisions, decisions that honor God, decisions with love, you build good character, a good life, a good house. But when you make evil choices, choices that hurt other people for your own gratification, um, well, your house is made out of rotten material, and it's sure to fall. And sometimes, sometimes, when you've made enough evil decisions, you start telling yourself that that's just who you are. And you get in so deep in a rut, in a way, in a path, that maybe you can't see a way out. And you know, sometimes it takes a miracle or a huge event to see that you can still be forgiven. And I think when Judah heard those words, please examine and see, I think it went back to his original moment of faith with his own brother the source of his deepest shame. How could you live with that? You know, selling that child, that little brother to slave traders, telling your father he's dead, manipulating like that, the shame, the guilt he must be carrying that sends him down this road. He probably moved to Canaan because he disqualified himself from thinking he could be used by God. Don't we do that sometimes? He's humiliated in public by Tamar, and he's convicted right there of his sin. And it's as if there were a mirror in front of him, and instead of seeing his reflection of his face, he's seeing his character and all of its ugliness. And Judah now has a choice, a very real choice. Don't forget that Judah is still quite wealthy and prominent, and prominent men, even to this day in most cultures, they get away with a lot of stuff. And Judah could have just said, this lady's a liar. I have no idea how she got those. She probably stole them. And you know what? He probably would have got off scot-free. But he doesn't do that. Because the other choice that he has is he can repent. And these are the most important words in the story. He stops in the middle of the square where he's just called for the burning of this woman. And he says, she is more righteous than I. And in fact, in the literal, like, wooden Hebrew translation, it's more accurate to say, she is righteous, not I. That's what it literally says. Now, we know that the worst sins can be forgiven. Our scripture reading today that Raquel read was from Psalm 51. That's a response by David to his adultery with Bathsheba and then the murder of her husband, Uriah. But this reminds me of another story in the New Testament, the story of Peter the Apostle, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples. But when Jesus was arrested, Peter got scared, and he's in the guard courtyard, and he's around a charcoal fire, and Jesus is being whipped and interrogated, and three times around that charcoal fire, people say to him, hey, you're, you're with Jesus, aren't you? And he denies it three separate times to three people, to three groups. And after Jesus is killed, Peter just goes away weeping. In fact, in Luke's gospel, it says that that third denial that Peter looked up and he caught eyes with Jesus who was being beaten and interrogated. And they caught eyes together and that Peter wept and ran off. 
And the story tells us that Peter, you know, he just went away fishing again, not fishing for men like Jesus called him to do, but just, he just went back to fishing. I'd imagine he's just so down and depressed. Jesus is dead in his mind. Um, was the last three years of his life for nothing. Um, and now he's living with the rest of his life in his mind. I'm living with failing my friend on the last day, the hardest day of his life. And he's fishing and he comes in one day and there's a charcoal fire and there's a guy there and so he goes up to him and it's the risen jesus and it's around that charcoal fire the smell i there's you know smell brings you back to places um cory and i were in scotland one time i'd never smelled peat fires before and we were in this little library um at the place we're staying and they had a peat fire if i ever smell that smell again i'm instantly my mind's going back to that place and i think Peter's around this charcoal fire. He's smelling the smell, and Jesus forgives him three times right there. You've made new. At that moment, Peter's past was undone, and his future became a new horizon because of the radical redemption of Jesus, who was born from the line of Judah. Because Judah and Tamar had two kids, and one of them was Perez, and Perez goes through Obed and Jesse and David and all the way to Jesus. And I just want to say, I mean, this is a strange story with all kinds of weird, like, stuff that doesn't fly. It's not PC. It's horrible. But you may think that you are not redeemable anymore. And I see a lot of, a lot of us out here, I'm putting myself like this, us, a lot of us do this great job of like, yeah, I follow Jesus, I believe in forgiveness, all this stuff, but there's these parts of our hearts that we like usually have scars around or shields around or walls around, and that's the stuff that's really dark. The things we've said and done, we don't let anyone else know that weigh us down. And we don't let the Jesus in there because we don't really think he can forgive us from that. And that's why there's messed up freaking stories like this in the Bible. You want to know why it's in there? <laughs> because it can't just be flowery little forgiveness. It's got to be deep, dark sin that reveals that your deep, dark sin can really be forgiven. God is a God who can redeem even your worst history and make something beautiful out of it. And it begins with repentance, with confession, with the sincere, sincere desire to start over. And we have a gracious and loving God. And you know, it, the story tells me and the rest of the scriptures tell me that you really have to want to be damned to avoid his mercy. Like Judah is redeemed in this story. And through her tenacity, Tamar is redeemed and brought into the family of God. And you know, through Tamar's good character would come the family through whom Rahab, the prostitute, comes. And Ruth the Moabitess comes from that line. And David the son of Jesse. And Jesus the son of God who was born to rescue us from sin and death. Amen? But there's more. This story, while it assumes forgiveness, is really about new life. Jesus did not only die to, to redeem you, but to remake you. You know, it's through the humility and forgiveness and God's radical redemption that Judah becomes the kind of man who will lead his family to Egypt, 
where he can find relief from the famine that was killing people up where they were living. It is the remade Judah whose very heart has changed from being cold and callous and selfish to soft and warm and compassionate. Judah becomes a lover. Judah becomes loyal to his father and loving toward his brothers, even to the point of offering his own life in exchange for his brothers. Does that sound familiar? Judah is on the road to becoming like Jesus. And that's our path. New life, new creation. It all begins with a repentant heart. And I think, Torin, um, I had the communion confession slide up there. I think we're just going to close the sermon time with that because it's based on Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, in your faithful love. In your great mercy, wipe out my offenses. Wash me clean from my guilt and purify me from my sin. I'm well aware of my misdeeds and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil before your very eyes. And you're right to accuse me, justified in passing sentence. For the causes of my sinfulness go back to my earliest years. Lord, create in us pure hearts. Oh God, put a new and right spirit within us. Don't drive us away from your presence or remove your spirit of holiness. Restore in us your joyous salvation. Support us and strengthen our will that we might teach others your ways and that they too might turn to you. Lord, the sacrifice that you accept is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Help us to take you at your word and to come honestly and authentically with who we are at this moment, trusting that the God who redeems radically a man like Judah can do the same in us.